Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. I look at that flag over on my left shoulder there, that American flag, and I'm prompted to do something. I'm prompted to say, I pledge allegiance to the flag to the United States of America for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Does anyone say that anymore? Does anyone even recognize that? I used to say it every day in public school to start the day when I was a kid. That's right. I said it in public school. But I don't know if it's what's more ironic, the fact that we don't recite it anymore publicly, virtually, or that what it says has always been, in a sense, wishful thinking. God sovereignly birthed this country. He did 245 years ago today. But has the United States always been one nation under God? Has it always offered liberty and justice for all? To be honest, if you were an African-American in the first century or so of this country's history, you would have to answer no to that question. And if you were a pre-born child, unborn child, over the last 50 years or so, the answer would be no to both of those questions as well. That said, because there's no place on earth that's perfect, I can tell you I have a great love and affection for this country. I always have, as many of you do. And I'm glad to have been born and raised here, lived here, likely to die here. I'm grateful to God that I was not born in my family's native country of Cuba, which has known little about freedom in its history. You know, we're called the land of the free, the home of the, right, freedom or liberty. It is probably this country's greatest traditional virtue or characteristic, if you will, tourists and exiles, millions from oppressed countries across the world, they come here for freedom. It's the land of opportunity. But I think we've taken the last part there a little too far in terms of freedom. And that's what we're going to look at today on America's birthday. We're going to look at real freedom. What does real freedom to a Christian look like? According, not to me, to the Word of God, because I think our society has abused that concept for at least two generations. Now, today in this country, people have even a tough time identifying what gender they are, much less being in touch with other realities in the name of freedom. People believe they are free to flaunt their freedoms, whatever they are. Freedom to have sex with and marry whomever they want, however many they want, Kill preborn babies because they're inconvenient. Work when they want. Say what they want. Do what they want. With little or no limits. Or consideration for the general welfare of society. All in the name of what? Freedom. Freedom. That's nothing new to world history, by the way, what I'm telling you. Just historically, it's something relatively recent for the United States of America. That's what it really is. 
the the people of God are 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 not accustomed to this to what has happened in our country over the years. I mean, the the father of our country, President George Washington said this, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. He said that. And if you really know your American history, by the way, you would know that the settlers of this country, they settled in the northeastern shores of this country 150 years before that first Independence Day. They were Puritan-thinking, Bible-believing Christians from England. And what they wanted was just a land where they could worship God and preach the gospel in real freedom. Real freedom. So I think we need to reflect, yes, on our roots, but where we are today and then where we're going. And so to do that, in order to live out real freedom to the glory of God, we are in the first letter of the Apostle Peter. It's one we studied in depth, really, five years ago under the very appropriate title, Strangers on Earth. And we're in chapter 2 because there's a whole lot of things going on. They're a lot stranger now even than they were then for people like you and me, for Christians that are trying to remain faithful to the Word of God, obey the Word of God, right? And we're called, this is why this is so important, because we're called to live in this world but not be a part of it. And so we've got to figure that out. So Peter dealt with this 2,000 years ago. He wrote this letter to the dispersed early church. They were persecuted, forced out of Jerusalem. They began to grow in other nation states of that region. God's people were surrounded by ungodly, unregenerate, pagan people all over the place, you know, like we are today. And they were trying to figure out how to live in that time, in that place, that environment which is a parallel to our times today in an uncanny way. It really is. So Peter begins the, law, the letter, as Paul often does in his, by giving us what are called indicatives. That's a Bible word just meaning indications of who we are, our new identity in Christ as new believers. And then once they're established, he's going to give us an apostolic direction on how we are to live based on who we are. And that's a good thing. That's a good flow there. Because after all, conduct always follows character. So listen. I want you to listen to Peter's description, how he describes you, us, the church. These are indicatives at the beginning of the chapter. We're in 1 Peter 2, just verse 5, says that we're a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And then verse 9 says you're a chosen race. You know this verse. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession. So that's how God sees us. That's how he made us to be, by his mercy. But then the rubber hits the road here. After indicatives, the Bible gives us what are called imperatives. Imperatives are commands. How do we apply this new identity we have? In fact, the great Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer, he put it in the form in his classic book of a question called, How Now Shall We Live? How now shall we live? How do you live the Christian life in an unchristian world, dare I say it, in an unchristian USA? And that's a provocative question. Because again, we were brought up, this nation was founded in a Christian culture. You know that, right? 
As a matter of fact, as recently as 1931, the Supreme Court of the United States made this declaration. Quote, we are a Christian people, according to one another, the equal right of religious freedom, and acknowledging with reverence the duty of obedience to the will of God. End quote. I don't know if you caught that. That was the Supreme Court in the mid-20th century. President Woodrow Wilson say the same thing, essentially, 1911 echoing another Supreme Court decision from 1892. 1983, President Ronald Reagan declared it in this country the year of the Bible. What president's going to do that today? In that official proclamation, it stated, quote, biblical teachings inspired concepts of civil government that are contained in our Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, end quote. That's true. God and the gospel of Jesus Christ are in no root, are in our roots. Make no mistake about that. We're rooted there. That just doesn't mean that's where we still are. Those quotes I've read you, Washington's, they are far away from this country's current conversation and culture. The apple has fallen far from the tree. We are in what is better described as a post-Christian culture, post, after, right? The church and the Bible has lost a good deal of its influence in our country. We have to admit that. A Gallup poll just reported for the first time in our nation's history that less than half of Americans claim membership in a church or house of worship. And that trend really started to go that way in the face of liberalism toward the end of the 19th century, picked up steam in the 20th century, and is now running full steam ahead as we are in the midst of the greatest moral sexual revolution this country has ever seen. And how did we get here? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because that could take a long, long time and could be rather depressing. But I'll just give you two texts of Scripture, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, that kind of summarize how we got to be where we are today. Jeremiah 18.10, the prophet is giving God's word to Israel about going to captivity, and he writes, And if it, the nation Israel, does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. If you don't listen to God, he will relent, he will hold back the good he was going to do to it. And then I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, for a moment, to Romans, Romans chapter 1. It's a huge section that is very relevant to our times today. In fact, in my old King James Bible, as I was first getting to know Christ and growing in the Word, I know I, I wrote in the, I still have it in my library, it, it says in the margin of the Bible, this is America. And it starts off with the wrath of God against ungodliness, unrighteousness. In verse 18, it says verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Okay? God has revealed himself generally through creation, specifically through his word. People deny that. Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So he's talking about a society of people, nations, it could be from time to time over history, that act like this. And then verse 24 says, Therefore... God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies 
among themselves. Go to the middle of verse 26 if you're there. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. Verse 28, since they did not seem fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. God gave them up, turned them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he gives a list of about two dozen typical sins that follow. And it wraps up in verse 32, that passage where Paul writes, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but listen, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's America. That's the place we live in. Romans 1. We, we are in the midst of Romans 1. Have been for more than a generation. That's what freedoms become. Because when you want unfettered freedom, mankind is totally depraved and doesn't know when to stop. That's what we do with freedom. You turn your backs on God and the freedom to sin as a nation, much of it from the professing church, by the way, comes as becomes the highest value that there is. So as you sow, so you shall reap. With that in mind, how does the born-again biblical church respond? How do we live? How now shall we live? Our text in 1 Peter 2 gives us three ways, three commands. Here they are. Be holy, be humble, be free. Be holy, be humble, be free. We'll take them one at a time. Be holy. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We'll just stop right there. That's a good broad category right there. First thing that sticks out, by the way, if you're a Christian, you're a foreigner in this country. I mean, do you feel that way? Because I do. You're an alien. And that's what Peter's telling the Jews, Jewish Christians in the early church. Already, right from the get-go, the church just started. By the way, consider yourself to be a sojourner. You're passing through. You're an alien. You're a stranger on earth. You are in exile, and you're a pilgrim, too, on top of that. So this is not our permanent home, folks. Don't get too comfy here. The Greek compound word there, there we get the word alien in English, literally means living alongside your home. That's what an alien is. You're not really home. You're close to it. We're not home yet, but we live nearby. Why can't this be our home? Why can't the USA be really our home? Simply because it's full of sin and unrighteousness, and that's not the permanent home you're headed to. Which is why Paul, by the way, in Philippians 3 said, our citizenship is in heaven. And the word, the Greek word for citizenship is where we get the word politics from. Your politics, your citizenship is in heaven. And that text brings John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress to my mind. You know, we're like the character. We're all Christian, in a sense. We're making our way through the way of city of destruction on the way to the celestial city. With all the landmines along the way we're trying to navigate. And specifically, this text, others like it in the New Testament, they're steering us to think of our time and place here as being evangelistic. Keep that in mind. 
It is a time to glorify God and His Son by how we live, how we walk, how we talk as a means of pointing sinners to the Savior they desperately need. Your life on earth, really, think of it this way, is about ministry. Because we're preparing in this life for the next one, which is our best life. Then, Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And the city he's talking about is the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. It's not here. It's not Miami. Our journey starts with holiness. Because in this letter, Peter quoted Leviticus and said, People, be holy as he is holy, referring to Christ. So to be holy, what is it to be holy? It's not a word you hear a lot today in Christian circles. should be. It is to be different in a nutshell. Sanctified, set apart, distinct. Okay? Think of it this way. We don't isolate from the world. We're not to isolate from the world, but we're not to imitate the world. We don't think and do as the world, the unredeemed world, does. You can't be salt and light either, as the Lord commanded us to be if you're hidden under a bushel or a basket. If we go to that Sermon on the Mount language. You know, I remember studying, I bring this up because I remember studying the fundamentalist movement of the mid-20th century. I like history, American history, so I'm into this and I'm reading about this. And, you know, it was well intended. There was a time period, biblically-based Christians separated from society in large manner. Think about the separatists in 16th century England. It was very similar. What we did as a, as a church, Christendom separated from liberal, from the culture. Didn't want to be tainted. We stopped being salt, which is flavorful, and we hid our light to the degree that the church lost its influence, including over institutions that we see today we wish we hadn't lost. Government, politics, media, the arts, academia, things like that. We're still dealing with all those consequences today, and we will continue to, I'm sure. By the same token, salt enhances, it brings out flavor. It's a preservative. So, Spiritual green card carrying Christians, which is what we are. We are to strive to be holy because we are living countercultural, godly lives that attract the loss that God is drawing to Himself. How do we do that? The text says, abstain from the passion or lusts of the flesh. That way you don't lose your tug of war with your testimony, with our remaining flesh, and you're not going to blow your witness to the world. Speaking of the world, we would be so much in better shape if we stopped trying to love the Lord and the world equally. That can't be done because the world is, as the apostle wrote, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. God ain't about that. So now we're going to get into our sense of real freedom. By the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, and I believe Pastor Alec touched on this today earlier, we are free to say no to sin. That's a part of your real freedom. Folks, an unredeemed sinner cannot say no to sin. Temporarily, maybe the most heinous kind, but it's their nature to sin. They're slaves to sin. You are not. We are instead holy. We abstain from fleshly lusts. Paul in Romans 8 put it this way. By the Spirit, Holy Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. 
That's a positive way to put it. We have the freedom to kill off our old sin nature a little bit at a time. So remember here, the fruit of your faith, whether it's good or bad, is a witness to the world. Verse 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You say, what was happening with these Christians at this time? They were dispersed because they were already being persecuted. They were already being thought of as villains, hated in the Roman Empire. They were being slandered. You say, really? I mean, what were they doing back then? They were thought of as immoral, believe it or not. Some Gentiles thought of these Jewish Christians as cannibals. You know why? Because they talked about taking elements like this as eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ. The Romans thought of that as cannibalism. Christians also were accused of being atheists. Atheists? Yes, because they would not swear allegiance to or worship Caesar and all of the other Roman gods. Well, you can't love God then, in their view. It's pretty warped. How about now? How do we get persecuted today? I think there's at least a few ways. The list is growing. I'll give you three major ways. It starts in the marketplace of ideas. Number one, mockery and slander for our worldview. If you have a biblical worldview of mankind and how the world should operate, you're going to be thought of as a little strange, don't you think? Aren't you getting some of that? Home, workplace, friends, family, religious liberty. You know, we talk about liberty and fighting for freedom. I've long thought that's the major one, really, to focus on in large part because of the gospel. It would be nice to be free enough to preach the gospel. Wouldn't that be a good thing? It's getting harder and harder in the workplace. You've heard about the baker making marriage cakes in Colorado. He's under siege and has been sued again. First it was the LGBTQ community because he wouldn't bake a cake uh, celebrating a same-sex marriage. Now it's transgenders are going after him for not doing a cake for one of their events. This is happening to florists. If you're in right now the wedding business period as a Christian, I wish you well. The schools, for sure, are being looked at very carefully, hiring practices, statement of faith. Is it being discriminatory? You're not. Foster care services. So we've begun. We're not at the point the first century church was in, but I believe persecution, as Peter put it, in the marketplace of ideas has begun. Thirdly, moral lifestyle. Just the way you live can offend people in this country, can't it? I mean, we don't cohabitate. We don't divorce as much as they do. We fight addictive behaviors. We stand for sexual purity, which they don't get. We hate sin. We hate darkness. Lost people love their sin and hate the light, like Jesus said. So the culture war that we're in is inevitable, folks. If you're a Christian, you are at war with the world. That's just, that's it. Take it or leave it. The issue is, how do we wage that war? How careful are we going to be? We win it with our lives and our lips, not fleshly weapons. Our speech and our behavior in person and in public has to be honorable in every way. In fact, at the end of this passage, verse 17, Peter writes, honor everyone. That means respect. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor, Caesar. Respect him as a Christian citizen. Yeah. We're about respect and loving neighbor as ourself. 
See, if you do that, the world can debate you about your theology and your doctrine, and they don't believe the Bible, but they can't mess with your life, with your testimony, if you're being holy. Okay? That's what makes the difference. If you're Christ-like in America, the skeptics can't honestly call you a hypocrite because of how you're living. In fact, the German philosopher said this years ago. I like it. Show me your redeemed life, and I may be inclined to follow your redeemer. Ah. You see, even lost people are looking for integrity. You do what you say, and you say what you mean. What that practically means is this. Your greatest evangelistic gospel tool is your testimony, a walk that precedes, goes in front of your talk. Peter talks about that in this letter. Talks about the fact that your greatest apologetic, the defense of the faith, that's what apologetic means, is your walk in talk. Being Christ conscious, being Christ committed. In essence, what you do is going to speak louder than what you say. Did you get that? What you do will speak louder than what you say. We want to live in a way that others would want to know Jesus. We want to live in such a way that the world, it says here in the text, would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? That means when the Lord comes back, the second coming. So what that is is an interesting way of saying that when the Lord comes back to judge the world, unbelievers will remember the living gospel they saw before in people like you and me. So there's no biblical justification, folks, for a world war from us. Okay, Our weapons, according to 2 Corinthians, are not carnal. They're not fleshly. Instead, it says that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. We do that in speech. We do that with what we say, what we write. We do it with godly communication. Look at 1 Peter 3. Turn a page in your Bible. And this is a familiar text. It's always had a big impression on me because it's about defending the faith. Verse 15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. Here it is. Always being prepared to make an apologia, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Here's the key. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, see, when you are slandered, it's not a question of if, just when and how often, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, if you're gentle and respectful, they can't really honestly slander you. They don't like what you believe in, but they can't really in their hearts dislike who you are because you're being genuine. To do that takes humility. Be holy, be humble. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me back at the text. Be subject or submissive for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We are not taught by Scripture to be revolutionaries in any political violent sense. We don't look to join angry protest mobs, violent mobs, like BLM, and we don't scream obscenities at our opponents. We don't overthrow governments. I was brokenhearted to see what happened this past January with the riot in the Capitol in Washington. 
We don't do what a 72-year-old Melbourne, Florida pastor did with his son and a churchgoer, a member of his church. They were just arrested last week being caught on video for what they did in disrupting behavior on the Capitol grounds. They were charged with violent entry, disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. And again, I didn't make that up. He was a pastor. An associate pastor was his son and a church member. Do you think that's salt and light? I think that's poison and darkness, actually. Christians living in America are commanded by the Bible. You can't argue with the text. It says, submit to the governing authority. Be subject to. It's a Greek term with a military component to it. It means falling in rank, coming under the authority of a superior officer. That would be the original intent of the language. In fact, that same word is used as a parallel in the context of Ephesians 5 and 6. Wives submit to husbands, husbands unto Christ, Christ to the Father, slaves to masters, children to parents. I mention that because in every way, shape, or form, Bob Dylan was right. you got to serve somebody. you got to be subject to, submissive to all sorts of people. In all sorts of ways, in different relationships. We shouldn't find this surprising. Not at all. Everyone has a boss. Church members submit to church leaders. Or other family members they're accountable to. Government's no different. Why would that be different? The idea is authority. God is a God of authority. He is the creator of everything. He's not the creator of chaos. Sin brought that in the world. With the fall, chaos came in the world. Because mankind is cursed by sin, folks, we need government. The founding fathers said it. Government is only appropriate for a nation that doesn't have angels in it. And that's us. If you didn't have government, you'd have nothing but anarchy and chaos in the streets. You know what you've been seeing lately in places like Portland and Seattle. As a quick reminder, the best New Testament parallel to Peter's argument, this concept of government punishing evil, promoting what's good, praising what's good, comes again from the book of Romans in the 13th chapter. And I'm just going to read you the first couple of verses. We did this in Romans in great detail, but it says again, in case you didn't get it from Peter, Paul gives it to you, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That means the bad ones, too. Titus 3.1 says the same thing. And listen to this bit of wisdom, by the way. Proverbs 24.21. My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. Don't be involved with people that are trying to disobey the government at will and be involved in violent protests and things of that nature. That's unwise, according to the Bible. That's why we don't partake of stuff like that. I mean, how do you glorify the Lord? How do you witness to the culture? How do you submit to the authorities if we're arrested at some protest? I mean, how does that work? What kind of witness is that? But let me say this. There are times to practice civil disobedience. They are the exceptions, not the rule. You disobey. We've talked about this before, just briefly. We disobey the authorities when they tell us to disobey a direct command of God, like preaching the gospel, praying, 
gathering together. The government says, don't do that. We say, no, sorry, we are. We also disobey them when they command us directly to disobey God's word, such as demanding that we worship idols, false gods, to murder innocent human beings. Government tells you to do that, you say, no. You say what Peter said with John, we are to obey God rather than man. In those instances, instances like that. That said, we have to be careful, folks, with our political posturing. The Lord is over politics, policy, law. Everything is under his domain. All that matters, by the way. We have opportunities to speak and act and vote. We're free to do that. We should take advantage of it. But real Christian freedom is free to shut up our critics with righteousness or better yet, humble holiness. As in our text, again, verse 15 says, for this is the will of God that by doing good... You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Good, godly, righteous conduct should shut up your critics. Should. Again, we have to remember, souls matter more than politics. And we should want to shut up. That Greek word literally means to put a muzzle on our critics with kindness. Remember, we love this country. Love of the country, though, can never equal love for the kingdom too many of us have taken our politics and our party affiliation too far. We have to be careful because remember that can lead to some problems. I'll give you three problems with being too political as a Christian. Number one, it can soften God's sovereignty. Political problems can soften God's sovereignty. What do I mean? God, we've already read the texts. God ordains governments and their authority of every which kind. Once they're in place... If you're going to look to be a revolutionary and overthrow them, you're kicking against God's sovereignty. Number two, it can hurt the main mission field. That's a big one. That's a big one. Verse 15 says, by doing good, you should put to silence ignorant or foolish people. Listen, family values opponents, Bible opponents of ours, unbelievers, you need to be reminded of something. They're the mission field. They're, you know why they're, they're acting like sinners? Because they're sinners. They're unredeemed. That was you before you came to Christ. That was me. How do you create and foster hatred amongst people you're trying to win to Christ? They're the mission field. You don't want to unnecessarily make enemies of the mission field. Another thing. Working as ecumenical partners with other religions on the same policy issues can force us to compromise our values and biblical truth, including the gospel. Some of you don't remember years ago in the 90s, there was a movement called ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And they got together, leaders in both communities, because the whole thing was we've got to stop this cultural issue, social issue, America's going liberal. This is in the 90s. Compare that to today. And so you had these leaders from these camps, moral majority, religious right, and what they were willing to do is overlook the fact they were working with religions with another gospel and a false gospel, which can be very, very tricky 
and very, very problematic. Why does that happen? Because when you elevate politics among the souls of people, you get into those kinds of things. We have to be careful. And thirdly, this is a big one, political problems and overemphasis can bring Phariseeism to our country. Our job, listen carefully, the job of the church is not to moralize America. We are not here to make America more moral. One reason is it's not going to work because much of America is unredeemable. People say, if only America could be more righteous. If only we could have a revival, let's do certain kind of revival meetings so more Americans would be honoring family values and would be this, would be that. You know, there was a group of people like that in the first century. They were superficially very moral. They wouldn't go around raping, killing, plundering, and doing all that kind of stuff. They were scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus condemned them all. Jesus isn't interested in a more moral America. Where do we get that idea? No scripture. Jesus is interested in his kingdom, building his kingdom, more people coming to Christ. We will see a cultural influence of Christianity if there are more Christians in the culture. Everything is about the gospel. Everything. Gospel, politics. You have to have your priorities straight, folks. Making America more moral for a short period of time does nothing long-term for the kingdom. There are lots of moral people that you know right now. I know a bunch of people. They're Mormon, Jehovah's Witnesses, law-abiding, tax-paying citizens. They don't repent. They're going to hell. What matters most, right? So be careful. Finally, verse 16 in our text. Be holy, be humble. Now here it is, be free. Verse 16, Peter says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Let me say one more thing about Phariseeism and being humble. I don't want to leave this out. When Daniel, and I so love that Pastor George put in the song of revival that he put in, Revival, we are to pray for the church to be revived. Because if the church is revived, the overflow is, we will have an impact on culture. We will have a better country, but more importantly, more souls will be saved. And God will be glorified, okay? In Daniel, Daniel 9, when he prayed, they were in the Babylonian captivity. He didn't pray for Babylonians to become better people. He prayed. He prayed for Israel as a nation to repent and turn to God. He prayed for mercy, as we sang this morning, for God's people to rise, to awaken, and return to God. So that's the kind of revival we're looking for. The kind of revival we're looking for is in the church. That overflow can manifest into society. You can't pray for a society that is deaf, dead, dumb, spiritually, to be revived. The dead cannot awaken themselves, can they? Be free then. God's not anti-freedom, folks. You'll never be more free than you are today if you're in Christ. 
Because you're free now to be who you were made to be. This is another great paradox of our faith, actually. Disciples of Christ are free, but we are slaves. Who are we slaves to? Christ, Romans 6. In fact, the Lord told us the opposite of that in John 8. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sinners are not free. They're bound. They're bound up. Following the passions, lust of the flesh. But people that love God, Christ, choose to follow him. You get freedom from sin, from Satan, from guilt over sin, and free from trying to earn God's grace and his salvation. That's why the Lord said, the truth will make you what? Free. You see the freedom he has in mind, what we're talking about? Real, true freedom, real freedom. Now, you have Christians, we have to talk about this for a moment, Christians who say, I love my liberty in Christ. Yeah. The New Testament says we're free in Christ. We're under grace, not law. So if it feels good, do it. As long as it doesn't break a direct command from God, I check the top ten, I'm good. No. Christian liberty is always regulated by Christian responsibility. And love. Love trumps liberty. We're not legalists, we're not Pharisees, but we're not libertarians either. We're servants of God, Peter said. We're free to serve, as Paul told the Galatians. Listen, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's pretty clear. We're new creations. We have no excuses for saying, you know, I'm saved, I'm free, let's party. Get wasted, wear and say whatever, no rules, it's all right. Saved from hell, got my fire insurance premium from hell paid. I prayed a prayer. That's not how, that's not how born again Christians talk. That's not how we live. Because if you do that, Peter is saying you are a cover-up. Your, your freedom is a cover-up or a mask for evil. Worse, it may still mean you're a slave to sin. Which means you may not even be a Christian at all. So, one more practical application for us as Christians and we're done. Christians who are truly, really free as servants of God want to listen to Jeremiah chapter 29. I want you to go there. Ten years ago today, we did a, a message from this text. We talked about Christian independence. How is that lived out, Okay. Jeremiah's letter to the Babylonian exiles. Okay, the Israelites are in Babylon because God wanted them there. He was judging them for their centuries of disobedience in general, idolatry in particular. They're going to be there for 70 years, so they're wondering, how now shall we live? We're, in, we're sojourners, foreigners, exiles, aliens, Peter's language. We're in Babylon. What do we do? Well, you should know because you're in a modern-day Babylon right now. And listen to what he tells them. Jeremiah chapter 29, just verses 4 to 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Wow. 
in summary, he's saying, you live here, settle down here. Plant roots here. Four things, he says. Verse 5, build houses. Sit down. The New Living Translation says, plan to stay. Reminds me of all these people that just, I, that's it. I got to move out of South Florida. And then they'll tell you like six months later, you know, the Lord's calling me to a mission field, some international mission field. You want an international mission field? Look out the door. Okay? You don't have to go anywhere. Some people are called to those foreign mission fields. Praise God for that. I support them 100%. That's not for everybody. It's not what God told Jeremiah to tell the Israelites when they were in Babylonian exile. He told them, live there. Be citizens there. Plant gardens, verse 5. That was an agricultural culture. So it means work, make money, have a responsible job. Verse 6, marry, have families. And you know what? He said kids. Have lots of kids. Kids are a good thing. And grandkids are great. And be fruitful and multiply in other words. Verse 7, he says, pray and seek the peace, the prosperity of the city. How many of you are praying for your leaders, as we'll do in a moment as we close? How many of you are praying for the president? I pray for his soul, as well as common grace for him and the vice president, Supreme Court, his administration to lead rightly. I've had a confrontation before with the, uh, with the congresswoman of my district here close by. Some of you know who I'm talking about. In my flesh, it'd be really easy for me to hate her. really would. I can't. I can't do that. That would be sin. So I pray for her every week, for her salvation, and I pray for her common grace. No small task, okay? I don't mind telling you. So the church, what am I getting at? The church should reestablish a presence and influence in the culture, yes. To do that, we pray for this nation as we did this morning. Pastor George led us in that. We seek real biblical justice and well-being. We work hard as unto the Lord, okay, because the church is the display of God's glory in the, in the world. So we can't retreat from society, folks. We build into it. We engage it. That's why G.K. Chesterton once described America as a nation with the soul of a church. And the how-to, again, is being salt and light, Matthew 5. That's how, in the words of our Lord, we are to live in America today in real freedom. Be holy, be humble, be free to say yes to what we should say yes to. So as I close... I'll just say, I am glad to be an American. Patriotism means to have a special affection or a love for country. There's nothing wrong with that. I'll be honest, I watch the Olympics, like they're coming up soon, and I, I see our athletes, those that stand for our country on the medal stand as the national anthem plays, and I, I still get chilled sometimes. I do, I sing along with it. But as a Christian, I pledged allegiance when we started. My greatest allegiance is not to this country. Love this country. But it's not my greatest allegiance. This country still is a nation under God, under his sovereign rule. But my greatest allegiance, and I hope it's yours, is to Jesus Christ and his church before this country. It's okay to sing the Star Spangled Banner. 
I do at the ball games all the time. It's even better if you love to sing Amazing Grace. The way to be an American best is if you are an American first. Let me repeat that. The way to be an American best is if you are a Christian first. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Amen. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to go to your word and be reminded about the real freedom that we have in Christ. We are reminded of what our role is as sojourners, exiles, and aliens in our country and culture today, which is to be holy, humble, and free representatives, free in the truest sense of the word, of Jesus Christ and the kingdom. Lord God, I pray that uh, for a person to be a true citizen of the kingdom, that they would be Christian. And so, Lord, for those that are listening, I pray that someone came into this room today, didn't know where they were with you. Today is the day of revival in their own personal hearts where they will turn to you away from their sin and selfishness, lifestyle of sin, and they'll trust in Jesus alone by faith alone, understanding, accepting he is the only sacrifice payment for their sins so that they would be forgiven. And that's what the Lord's Supper we're about to observe is all about, Lord God. Thinking of the cross, thinking of our redemption, Lord God. And Lord, thinking about Independence Day today in America, our birthday of this nation, thank you, Lord, for again the opportunity that we have and the freedoms that we have in this country still. I'm so grateful to that, for your common grace and your divine sovereign grace for us all, Lord. And I urge, Lord, as your word tells us, that prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, Lord, for the kings, presidents, congressmen and women, senators, state legislature, the governor of this state, county, city commissioners, Lord. I pray that you would bless them all, lead them in wisdom and grace, that we would lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way, because this is good and pleasing in your sight, because you desire all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We pray these things, and all God's people said, amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurchcom.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.